following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WCWA Network. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California in Fury. What a joy, a privilege to be with you all once again. And and for me right now, this is quite exciting because as you all know on the Insider's Edge, we don't just interview wrestlers or, or ex-wrestlers. We've had referees on the show. We've had... Uh, former uh, ring announcers on the show. We've had former authors of, of wrestlers books on the show. We try to reach out to every kind of different area that there can possibly be in the realm of professional wrestling. And here right now, I have a, a man who's worn many hats in his time of professional wrestling. Here's the one, here's the only, here's John Arezzi. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show, sir. And uh, I w- just want to make a bit of a clarification here. Um, what would be, what would you want to give, if you could give yourself a title for what you've been most known for in wrestling? As I said, you've worn many hats. What would you, what would you say you, that you are? Uh, I mean, current day, I'm really a historian. I mean, that's kind of what I'm known for right now uh, because my history in wrestling dates back 50 years or, you know, 60, uh, close to 60, if you count me just watching as a little kid. But, um, but really I got into the business uh, at the young age of 14, really. <laughs> uh, so it's been quite a while and I'm going to be 65 in January. So uh, yeah, I'm closing in on, uh, on many, many years in the business. Absolutely. Well, you look fantastic for 65, sir. And uh, you That's know, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, um, you know, it is important to have uh, so, so historians out there that keep the uh, keep the memory alive of, of of how the business once was and how it kind of evolved through the years. And you've you've been able to see that, and uh, so I, I find it to be uh, really fascinating. And I can't wait to dig into it. The first question, John, usually on the show, uh, is when you first became a fan. How old were you and and what was it that helped you become a fan of professional wrestling? Well, I, it was 1964. Uh, I was seven years old and uh, we lived in Brooklyn, New York, my family. And one evening, my older sister, who's five years older than me, so that means she was 12. Uh, she called me into the living room. She goes, Johnny, come in here. I don't know what this is, you know, so I run into the living room. Uh, and that's where, you know, we had seen the Beatles on Ed Sullivan when they debuted in America. So she obviously her calling me in and meant something. So uh, uh, but when I looked at the television, uh, there was a, uh, a rest. Uh, there was a ring with four midgets in it or little people, as you refer to them today, running around, biting each other on the butt. I mean, uh, it was kind of I was like, what is this? Uh, so I sat down and started watching it. And then later on in the program, uh, there was a, you know, a real, you know, it was a wrestling match and, uh, and it involved a guy named Antonio Pliese. I remember it against Dr. Jerry Graham, who was a, a you know, historic figure in the business. And Antonio Pliese, uh was Bruno Sammartino's cousin. So 
Uh, anyway, that hooked me in because um, uh, it was supposed to be a tag team match. Bruno wasn't there. And all of a sudden, Pugliese is getting beat up. And this guy, this big burly Italian guy, runs into the ring with suitcases in a suit and starts hitting this guy over the head with it, Dr. Jerry Graham. And there's blood. And, I'm, and I, I just got drawn in. And, and that was it. That was at the age of seven. So uh, I, I, I just became a fan after that. <laughs> so it's why I like starting with that question because the answer is always the same, but it's always different as well. It's like the most yeah. of the time they saw it, that was it. They were hooked. They knew that they either wanted to do it or they wanted to at least be a part of it in some way and follow it for the rest of their life. Uh, uh, so you mentioned earlier, 14 years old, when you uh, first got involved in the wrestling business, how does a 14 year old figure out a way in at that point in time. Good question. And I'm going to get a prop real fast. So bear with me. Okay. No problem. As a fan, uh, I started watching wrestling, uh, getting all the magazines and, and uh, as a teenager, I mean, just started really getting into it. Uh, and one guy that um, who I really was uh, just amazed by was Fred Blassie. Uh, Freddie Blassie, classy Freddie Blassie. Uh, and uh, he was uh, one of the most brutal villains, one of the most believable heels in the history of the business. And uh, early on, I started reading about him, about his uh, comebacks from uh, you know, not just you know losing a kidney to bouncing back after hepatitis and always getting back in the ring and causing a riot against Bruno San Martino in New Jersey. And I was like, this guy is great. And then in New York, we started getting... Uh, some TV coverage from the West Coast, uh, the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. And there he was this baby face. He was this incredible, beloved uh, hero. And I was like, this guy's amazing. So uh, as I started and, and I attended my first live wrestling match in New York at 14, there was a New York state law where 14 and under could, uh, 13, up to the age of 13, 14, you couldn't get in. So you had to be 14 to see a wrestling match. And when I went to my first live show in August of 71, uh, it just drew me in. And then I just had the idea. It was like, because Freddie Blassie was now coming in there to challenge Pedro Morales. And I was like, I'd love to have a start a fan club for this guy. And so that's what kind of started me. I did a uh, fan club for Fred. Uh, I went to Madison Square Garden. It was December 6, 1971, where he wrestled Pedro Morales. And I brought a little piece of paper, which was a permission slip uh, for him to give me permission to start the club. I tried to get into the locker room. They wouldn't let me. I was 14 years old. Uh, but a security guard brought the uh, permission slip in. And 10 minutes later, it comes out and it's signed by Fred Blassie. Uh, and I was like, oh, my God, this is great. And the friend I was with, he's like, that's not real. You know, anybody could have signed that. And so I, I mailed it out to a guy in California who used to run Freddie's fan club, who worked for the Olympic Auditorium named Jeff Walton. Uh, the Fred Blassie Fan Club. Now, here's one of the uh, earliest. Uh, you can see how antiquated this thing is from 1973. <laughs> It was on mimeograph paper, so it was called the King of Men Bulletin. And uh, and then I started, you know, getting a little bit more 
uh, tech savvy with a, a Xerox machine where I could actually uh, have photographs in it. So King of Men, uh, the newsletter for the Fred Blassie fan club started and, and uh, it was a labor of love. And, and what really changed my life uh, was this letter I got, look at the date there in March uh, 8th, 1973. Yeah. Blassie uh, inviting me to Madison Square Garden uh, to say hello to him. So I brought this letter with me and lo and behold, uh, I get backstage, meet Fred Blassie, uh, and, uh, and then I wind up winning uh, fan club of the year in 1974. I start taking pictures at the matches. I start shooting eight millimeter films at the matches. So as a young, as a teenager, uh, I started getting involved in the business. Uh, and then at the age of 16, I actually bullshitted my way into uh, getting a press pass from Madison Square Garden. So I was able to sit at ringside with all the uh, photographers. And I started shooting pictures and writing stories, uh, articles for all the wrestling magazines at the age of 16 years old. Wow, that's that must be so exciting <laughs> for, for, at that age to be so close to it. Um, how did you find the experience of being a photographer there and shooting at the shows? I mean, uh, what would you say like a typical day would be like for you at that point in your life? Well, uh, once I, you know, as the fan, I would go early, hang out, uh, you know, where the hotel was, where these guys were staying. And, and then afterwards you go, you know, you try to get into the bar where they're all hanging out. But as, as a photographer, you know, literally the, the day was, um, was great. I mean, because you would have to go to the offices of the, uh, well, the WWE at the time was called Capital Sports. Uh, and they were on 42nd Street in New York City in a little dingy hotel. Uh, and that's where, you know, Gorilla Monsoon, Arnold Skolin, that's where the office was. And so you'd have to go there every month to get your, your ticket, your photographer's ticket or press ticket. And, uh, and then you'd go downstairs and hang out and talk to some of the guys and you get to know them a little bit. But uh, you know, as a teenager, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't as uh, renowned as a Bill Apter or George Napolitano and they kind of mentored me. And then, you you know, you'd hang out and, you know, you'd go to the show, you'd shoot ringside, you'd, you'd go backstage first and do your interviews uh, in an area where they uh, kept the photographers and the reporters. And um, and then you went to the mat, you went to shoot the matches at ringside. So, uh, for me, I mean, there's a, you know, and I just started a new podcast, which I talk about, about 50 years at the Garden. For me, when I went to my first show in August of 71, I went to every single Madison Square Garden show uh, through mid-77. I didn't miss a show. So I have thousands of photographs. And uh, I even shot eight millimeter films before I had my press pass of Andre the Giant's debut match at Madison Square Garden and so much other stuff. But um, yeah, it was just kind of, it was just kind of uh, an interesting ride. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, you mentioned Bill Apter's name, so I, I have to go there because um, obviously he's like such a legend, legendary figure in what it is that he does uh, and has done for a long time. What would you say would be something that you learned or the, the, lesson, the best lesson maybe that you learned from, from Bill? Uh, the best lesson... Well, he always was so kind to me to this day. He is. We're still friends. But it was kind of like respect the business, respect the privacy, respect kayfabe back then. 
because it was all kayfabe. And, uh, you know, so that was kind of what I learned from Bill. And, and Bill also, uh, I, I, I sold uh, many photographs to his magazines at the time where he was the chief uh, writer, reporter. Uh, so uh, he, he, he always helped me along. He always had words of advice. Even recently when my book was coming out, uh, even before the book, uh, he was giving me some advice on the marketing of the book and how his book is still alive after many years being in print. And uh, so, I mean, I really respect the guy. I really do. He's a really good man. Excellent. I always like to get a shout out to him if uh, anyone brings him up on the show. Um, speaking of another great guy, uh, uh, doing my research, I have to ask about this man here, Ernie Roth, the Grand Wizard oh of Wrestling. Uh, I, I haven't had the chance to talk to anybody that knew him. So now's the opportunity to learn a little bit about him. Uh, please tell me a little bit about your friend. I tell you, uh, Ernie was maybe as far as the insiders, other than Freddie Blassie, who I knew because of the fan club. But once I got to know Ernie back then, uh, he became a friend pretty quickly. Uh, he was always uh, the guy who would help you with, in the back, like, because it was very secretive and it was all kayfabe. He, you know, if I wanted to interview somebody, he would like, he's okay. You can, you know, you could talk. John is a good man. And uh, so he was always like that. And uh, there was a couple of times that he was really instrumental in, uh, in uh, one time saving me from Ivan Putsky. Uh, I was writing for Ring Wrestling Magazine and we're in Philadelphia, the TV tapings. And, you know, when you go, when you go to the show, if you work for a magazine, you'd bring copies to give to the guys that you may have done an article about or whatever. So Ivan Putsky um, had gotten a copy of Ring, magazine, Ring Wrestling Magazine, and he was reading the letters section. And he knew I worked for Ring. I was a photographer, and he's reading it, and he gives me this eye. And I was I actually shot a picture of him, and he just was giving me, like, the stink eye, you know. And, and, uh, and then he was like, you work for that magazine? I was like, yes. And, and, and uh, he was like, they write about me being a – and he was in gimmick voice – and they write about me being stupid Polak. I'm not, you wrote that. And he was like ready to like hit me. And then uh, Ernie was like, hey, you know, he's a writer photographer. That's a lot. He has no, he had, he doesn't put the letters in the magazines and <laughs> kind of use that situation. Um, and, and then the other thing that he was really instrumental with a couple of things, actually. I mean, because I used to hang out with Ernie a lot. Uh, especially because I, I went to college in Boston, uh, Massachusetts, and that's where he was located. And he was actually one of the uh, promoters of the Boston Garden. He worked in the office for the WW, WWF back then in New England. So, uh, uh, so he, um, he basically helped me greatly up in the Boston area as well because uh, I started a college radio show called Pro Wrestling Spotlight, and he'd get guests for me, and he'd be on the show, and he was just a wonderful guy. And then finally, uh, the last thing he did for me, which he might have regretted and I might have regretted, was I, I said I wanted to go in the ring and see what it would be like to be a wrestler. And he was like, why would you want to do that for? What are you, crazy? And I was like, well, I just want to give it a shot, you know. And and uh, so he goes, all right. And he set me up in January 10th, 1978 without any training at all, 
I show up in Philly as I always did to take pictures, but this time with my gear, I bought some tights and boots from K&H Wrestling Wear and Gorilla Monsoon was the booker and Ernie comes out and introduces, you know, and he goes, you got your gear? Monsoon says to me, I was like, yeah. He goes, where have you worked? Oh, I said, I've done a lot of matches down south. And that was it. He said, all right, heel or baby. And I said, uh, heel. And uh, and then that was it. And I didn't even know what to do next, to be honest with you. And Ernie was like, uh, and I said, Ernie, I said, Ernie, can you, because I was even afraid to go into the dressing room. I mean, at this point, that's how green and stupid I was, but not stupid. I I, I think it was crazy more than stupid. Uh, and I said, can you find out who I'm wrestling against? And two minutes later, he comes out and he goes, Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> and he just shook his head and laughed. And I got the shit kicked out of me by Dusty because he knew I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, they actually had put a guy named Sylvana Sousa in with me to watch over me because they all the word spread that I was the photographer guy. And uh, even Vince McMahon said to George Napolitano, I didn't know our resi was a worker. And George is like, I didn't know either because <laughs> I didn't tell anybody. So I had a brief two-match um, two career. Uh, I, I wrestled twice in the in that taping, and Ernie was responsible for getting me involved with that. So, uh, And uh, ironically, the ironic part of it was that uh, the following month, I go to Madison Square Garden to take my spot at ringside, like I did for several years. And uh, my pictures in the program wrestling Chief J Strongbow, because that was my other match that night. <laughs> and um, and uh, I get pulled out of ringside to the back. And they're like, you can't take pictures anymore. And I was like, what do you mean? Well, you were just on our television this week. So you can't shoot photos anymore. So I was a jobber for that night, and I jobbed myself out of a job. <laughs> Oh dear, and, and what you got for? Uh, I, I kept in touch with Ernie for you know, and he, he died way too young, of course. But uh, what a great, what a great man! I got great interviews with him still on cassette tape that I put up for my patrons on my Patreon account, and uh, I share that those archives with them. That's excellent. Thank you for sharing that. It's uh, it's it's funny how all of a sudden now uh, you <laughs> you just wanted a shot to see what it was like and now you no longer get to be photographer what's your next step in professional wrestling at that point now you you, you were right there yeah yeah and now you got to figure something else out well, where do you go from there well i was still in college i was only 20 so uh you know i i went to college for radio and television broadcasting and sports management i never really intended to have a career in wrestling that was never in my in, in, in one of my goals, I wanted to work in sports. I wanted to work for the New York Mets. Uh, but um, being abruptly pulled from ringside, that was kind of a, you know, I wanted to stay in the business at least as a photographer for a couple of years until I graduated, but um, it didn't happen. So uh, so my next step, I mean, really, I, I moved, um, uh, I got a job out of college with the New York Mets. Uh, which was my dream. They put me in the minor leagues uh, to uh, get training and to work my ass off. And while I was down there, it was in the Carolinas, George Napolitano, who worked for all the magazines in New York, was like, hey, would you cover, you know, would you cover Charlotte, North Carolina, NWA for me? And so I'd still shoot some. And, I, you know, I would uh, send photos to George. 
uh, on some of the matches. The Starcade, I think, was one of the first ones I went to. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I stayed in it on a peripheral level, and um, and these this is now the 1980s, and and then I meet a a, a singer at a bar one night, and um, her name was Patty Loveless, and she became this iconic country singer. Uh, but anyway, I found her. She was a rock and roll singer. I couldn't, I can't believe I, you know, she was so amazing. So I quit my job at the Mets and started managing her. And I knew nothing about the music business. So that's how the 80s went for me, really. It was kind of working for the Mets, you know, getting out of wrestling, working for the Mets, uh, getting involved in artist management uh, with Patty, uh, moving back to New York in the mid 80s. And in 1985, I had an idea to start a wrestling talk show called Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And George Napolitano and I uh, teamed up and we got on a little radio station. And this is uh, October of uh, 85. It was like, you know, WrestleMania, everything is huge now. And uh, our first show, uh, we had Captain Lou Albano on and uh, Tully Blanchard and the owner of the station, who was about 80 at the time, heard uh, us playing Captain Lou's History of Music uh, record. And he just freaked out and he goes, I don't want this show on my station. So we did one show and we got he out of there. And, uh, and then in 1989, after my music company, uh, my management company went under, uh, I, I needed something to fall back on. And that's when I really entered pro wrestling full-time for the first time. Uh, and um, that was in 1989 when I started Pro Wrestling Spotlight Radio Show on, on the same station that threw me off the air. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, you're not awesome that you were thrown off the air, but uh, I, I just want to say by this point in your life, your life has been so interesting so far. I mean, <laughs> uh, you, you got to wrestle Dusty Rhodes, get your butt kicked by him. You, you managed a country music star. You, you've done all these different things. This is already so interesting to me. And this is the, this is the big part of the interview here, because I'm really, really interested to learn the ins and outs of this, because back then you, there was no podcasts. There was no streaming services or YouTube or, or any of these networks out there. You, you, you had a show at a station uh, on a certain frequency in different places at a certain time of a certain day of the week. And this is, a, you know, anyone these days can just record themselves talking to somebody and say that they now have a show. But back then, a lot more goes into it, especially uh, considering, you know, the way that, media was back then as, as, as it pertains to stuff like this. So how do you get something like that off the ground? I know you have to, uh, I believe I heard you mention in another interview that you have to pay for your spot and then sell advertising to make your money. Uh, so please from scratch, how, how does, how does John Arezzi start this thing and build it up? Well, uh, getting uh, to WNYG 1440 AM, uh, was the place that um, I put the show on and it was the place I got thrown off of. And, but I also had worked for them in sales and did a little sports reporting. So I had a more credibility in 89 than I did in 85 with them. Uh, and, and basically they didn't want to hire me. They said, if you want to show, you can have the time, but you got to pay. 
So it's like, all right, you know, what is it? It was, I think it was like 200 bucks a week to start for an hour. And uh, then you got to go out and find sponsors. So, uh, and it wasn't easy because pro wrestling um, was still, uh, you know, not the darling of a lot of advertisers, national advertisers. So it was a struggle. And it was like, you know, how do, what do I do? Because I know the business is a work. How do I cover the business? So one of the first calls I made was to the WWF uh, and introduced myself. And lo and behold, the PR director, a kid named Steve Planamenta, uh, knew me because uh, as a kid, he was a fan of mine reading the magazines. Ah, and cool. I, met him, I met him through a college friend. So anyway, he gives, he's like, all right, you're not going to be, you know, like you're not going to expose the business. I was like, no, 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 no. So he gives me Jimmy Hart. Uh, and, and it was just kind of like the show just got off the ground. First week I have Jimmy Hart. It's all kayfabe for the most part. Then, you know, my idol was Bruno San Martino. I call up my friend, George Ann Macropolis, who I knew for years, who was ran Bruno's fan club and was a beloved figure in New York wrestling scene. And I was like, listen, I'd love to interview Bruno. Uh, can you set it up? Can you ask him? And she says, sure, darling. And, you know, I was like, all of a sudden I'm talking to Bruno I'm taping an interview with Bruno uh, for my second show. And he starts just going off on the WWF and the steroids and Vince McMahon and all the horrible things that he witnessed in the mid eighties. And it wasn't the same business. And I'm like, Holy shit. I mean, how the hell am I going to play this? <laughs> Some bad thing. So I, uh, I reached out to the WWF and I was like, Hey, listen, I just want to let you know, I interviewed Bruno. Uh, you did. Uh, yes. And, uh, he didn't say a lot of, a lot of things. Can we get it? Can we hear that interview? I was like, I have to play for the station. And I had, I played for the station management and, uh, then the station management brought their attorneys in and here it is week number two. And I'm talking to <laughs> attorneys and I said, well, you can't play this. So you can't play that because we don't want to, you know, set ourselves up for a possible lawsuit. So I had to call Bruno back and say, can we redo this interview? And what do you mean? What do you, I was like, just because some things were said. And so I, I interviewed him, was more watered down. And, and the WWF then said, if you play that interview, we're not going to cooperate with you anymore. Week two. And I played the interview because I was like, well, they can't tell me what to do. You know, and I'm already getting cooperation from the NWA. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, I knew a lot of Paulie. I knew a lot of people years ago the nwa george made his introductions for me and helped me but uh that was the end of cooperation but the show you know was uh, kind of a little bit of a circus atmosphere in the beginning days uh, uh independent promoters indie wrestlers just trying to get whoever it was would be exciting but listeners were calling in because dave Meltzer had plugged it in, in the observer i got a little publicity here and there and i had a small little station only a thousand watts but we were we were rocking on the phone calls and the listeners and then when Ricky Steamboat left the WCW uh, under a contract dispute uh, in 89, I called, I got his number, called him, and he came on the show to talk about the contract negotiations, which wow. really had never been done before. I mean, totally shoot on what happened. And of all the newsletters, everybody picks up on it. And then Jim Hurd who was running WCW at the time, NWA, he comes on the show the following week to talk about it. And we're off to the races when it's now, all right, now it's, 
Now we're tearing this curtain down a little bit. So uh, that was kind of the start of the evolution of the show uh, becoming uh, an insider, real insider type of show. And uh, we stayed at that little station up until um, <clears throat> September 1990. And then we moved to a bigger station. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, so I mean, it's a, it's a long history. I mean, it, it, the show was on the air literally for six uh, years at the time. <laughs> that is incredible. <laughs> I feel like I've heard some of these stories before and some of the things I've, I've uh, looked up on uh, about you, um, but to, to hear them in full like that, it, that's so funny how within the second week you, you've, you've already caused this ruckus and you didn't even really intend to, you just wanted it to be Bruno. <laughs> my hero. The guy that I, my very first time watching wrestling, he was the guy and I was like, my paisan, my Italian, my hero, Bruno, I mean, the legend, living legend at the time. I mean, and then I get, uh, and then I get, uh, in trouble with uh, Vince McMahon's uh, company. <laughs> oh, that's great! I love I love Bruno. I love how honest he always was. Um, <clears throat> okay, so this was another thing I wanted to bring up because uh, you know the hustle, you know, and, and this is what I try and do for my show. I got, I, I try so hard to get as many guests as I possibly can. And it, for me, it's hard when I'm un, an unknown person from the other side of the planet. Um, so well, I want to You've done a great know, job. I've seen your guests. I've seen your list. You've done a great <laughs> job, man. Thank you. It's, it's been a hard, it's been a hard trot, but uh, I, I feel like I'm really starting to get there now. And I, I've been very uh, honored to, to have had so many great people on the show, uh, you included, sir. And uh, um, so, you know, when you're hustling and you're trying to get guests, you know, how hard of a, of a task was that at certain points? You know, was there ever a guy that you wanted to get that you just couldn't get? Please tell me about the difficulty of the hustle. Well, I mean, I couldn't get any WWF guys, and especially Freddie Blassie. I mean, that was kind of like, I didn't get him till September of 91. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you want Ric Flair, you want the big guys. Uh, but, uh, and Flair was always uh, very suspicious. Uh, he, you know, the word got around once that Ricky Steamboat thing aired that my show was kind of an insider show. So it was always, that was always difficult, but there was so much cooperation. Uh, let's, and, 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 you know, people then learn from the guys. It's like word of mouth, like Mick Foley, uh, Cactus Jack Manson, as he was known in 1989. I met him through independent wrestler, Sonny Blaze, who kind of co-hosted the show in the first uh, several months. And he was a friend of Mick's, Mick's from Long Island. I'm from Long Island. And he goes, can you bring uh, Cactus Jack, Manson on the show and he had just uh, completed this run in Texas with uh, WCCW uh, world-class championship wrestling and so it's like absolutely bring him on and he comes in in character stands up for two hours just blows everybody away and um, and he became a regular guest on the show for the entire history of the show I mean, I was with Mick uh, last week. He was here in Nashville doing a, a stand-up comedy show. And we were talking about it. I said, out of all of the guests, you were the guy who was on more than anyone else. You and Paul Heyman, Paulie Dangerously at the time. So um, 
I had a friendship with Paul Heyman too, which was another, it goes back to Fred Blassie fan club. Because Paul was a member of the Fred Blassie fan club as a little kid. And then after I stopped the fan club, he took it over. He ran the fan <laughs> club for the Grand Wizard, Freddie Blassie, and uh, Lou Albano. So Paul knew me. Uh, and when I reacquainted myself with Paul in 89, uh, you know, the first thing he does when he sees me, he was like, John Arezzi, boy, did you get fat, you know? <laughs> and that was my intro. But he was on the show all the time. So anyway, you know, they would pass along and then get backstage in NWA. And I started interviewing everybody. So, and as the show became more insider, when we moved to the bigger station, WGBB, WBABAM, WGBB, uh, my show became a platform for guys that wanted to speak out. And it was Eddie Gilbert. It was the Jimmy Cornettes. It was, uh, there were so many that just started seeing my show was kind of like, we can actually uh, talk as real people here. Uh, and so it kind of evolved. And it really started to take off in a major way with the steroid uh, stuff that went down. And, and so, uh, I mean, it's just kind of an, an evolution of a, a crazy time period in my life with all the radio shows and all the havoc and that the show created. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, as, I mean, uh, I did see Dark Side of the Ring last week. And actually, the, I think the day that I... Uh, had contacted you it didn't even dawn on me what episode was coming out next of dark side of the ring and uh it kind of blew my mind because i think you know it was only maybe 12 hours prior to it airing possibly or maybe it already aired um i just asked you to be on my show not even thinking about the fact that um you know this was a pretty good timing the fact that this episode was coming out and uh interviewing you for my show um, so when I saw you on the episode, I was like, oh my God, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, I guess I, I would to kind of, uh, now that you've mentioned it, kind of go down that road, uh, because I really did laugh at the part where you were on Phil Donahue, uh, and you're talking about <laughs> how, you, <laughs> how you kind of, uh, caught Vince, uh, out in, on something that, you know, he, he said that wasn't true. And then Dave chimed in and then Vince kind of looked a bit silly and gave you, Gave you the evil stare. Um, Very please, scary. <laughs> please tell me about the experience of being on Phil Donahue that day. You know, walking into the building, what's going on in the green room? You know, do you meet Vince beforehand? Do you meet Dave beforehand? What what kind of happened there that day? Uh, well, first, I want to say in regard to that that piece uh, where uh, where Vince, uh, when I asked Vince, you know, uh, weren't you devastated? Because I talked to Dave. And Vince thought it was a setup, and it wasn't. It was not a setup, because he told Dave after the show, you guys set me up, and he always thought that we set him up, which never was the case. But uh, once once that happened, um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a setup. But that, that whole Donahue show really was predicated on the – uh, was going on in the in, in the sex the sex scandals at the time. That show was built around the sex scandals, uh, yeah. not necessarily the steroid stuff. Uh, and then steroids were brought into it, obviously. But it was a very tense atmosphere. It was a tense day. And, you know, listening to Jerry McDivitt uh, on the dark side when he was like, 
saying, you know, who, you know, why would someone send dark suits or dark shirts to John's apartment? You know, he, that was a miss. That was not something that really had to do with the steroids or uh, the steroid stuff, because that day on the Donahue show, it was about the sex scandals. And I was being brought on to talk about m my knowledge and, 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 and just kind of share the experience of somebody that was going through it and reporting on it. So when those gentlemen, whoever they were, came to my apartment and spoke to my mom and asked if John Arezzi lived there and, you know, she said yes. And they said, well, tell him he lives in a dangerous neighborhood. It could have been a number of people who sent somebody over there. It could have been Mel Phillips. Mm -hmm. It could have been Terry Garvin. It could have been, you know, the other uh, people who were accused. It could have been a number of people. So, and, and who, you know, I'm not accusing anyone, but I said it could be, but the way McDivitt portrayed it on the dark side was like, you know, like what, you know, who would send somebody to John's house, you know, uh, or John's apartment. So uh, he was dismissive of me and he was 30 years ago. I'm like a pesky housefly that never went away and he was squatting me, but it's still around. Uh, but that whole day uh, was very tense. Uh, we were all uh, gathering in the green room. It was Bruno, it was Dave, it was me. Uh, I guess Murray Hodgson was there or whatever. And then Phil, uh, Phil Donahue brings McMahon in. And, and we, you know, there were rumors that he would be there, not be there. Uh, there was a lot going on. So when Vince came into the green room, I just remember everyone was like, and I remember Vince saying, how you doing, guys? You know, and he was so nervous. And Bruno was like, you know, Bruno just at the time despised him, especially because Bruno had appeared with him on the Larry King show a few nights earlier, and they had a, a pretty bad exchange. And and Vince uh, and Bruno, Bruno want, you know, Bruno didn't, Bruno fortunately didn't do anything, and that's why they even sat me, me. Uh, they separated Bruno and and Vince on the set because they knew how much heat was going on there. Uh, but it was a whole tense atmosphere, and everyone was expecting uh, Tom Cole, the late Tom Cole, he killed himself last year, uh, to, uh, and he was the main accuser of, uh, of you know, the Mel, for the Mel Phillips stuff and everything that was going on. Uh, we expected uh, Tom to be there, and, and Tom was there, but he had cut a deal with the WWF before the Donahue show, where he got, uh, you know, a check and he got his job back or elevation to a ring announcer position. And uh, and he winds up sitting in the audience with uh, Linda McMahon and Miss Elizabeth. So he's there in the audience and we're all like, holy smokes. And Vince set that up, uh, allegedly set it up uh, because if Tom Cole's name was going to be mentioned on the Donahue show, he was going to stand up and say, no, um, you know, these are great people that I'm associated with. So that whole thing played out very interestingly. And, and, and a side note, my mom, who had earlier in the day had some people at her, at our apartment, she was at the taping as was my sister and my brother-in-law and my mom at the end of the taping, at the end of the live show, you know, everyone's getting up and she goes up to Vince McMahon 
and my mom was not all there. She was, you know, she was all over the place uh, mentally, uh, but, you know, endearing, funny, but, uh, you know, but a little off the wall. Um, she goes up to McMahon and she, she puts her hand out and he doesn't know who she is. Mr. McMahon, how are you? I just want to let you know that I love you. I think you're incredible and uh, I really <laughs> admire you. And oh, thank you. Thank you. And, and what is your name? She goes, my name is Mary. I'm John Arezzi's mother. And the look, you know, another one of the looks, but, you know, this was a look of, you know, like shock and amazement rather than, you know. So anyway, he got out of there pretty quickly. <laughs> and I got a good laugh out of that. <laughs> Incredible. Um, and yeah, I, I want to say in response to what, you know, Jerry saying that it wasn't true. Why would your mom make that up? And, 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 but it won't be that specific line. You, you knew the specific line that was said that would be, you know, I just think that it, there's no way that um, she would make something like that up. And with what, you know, tell him that he's living in a dangerous neighborhood or something like that. That's such a specific thing. I think it'd be very hard to make that up. Um, so yeah. I, yeah, my mom was not somebody who would lie. I mean, cause she just didn't have a filter and, and, you know, she <laughs> never did. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So when she told me what happened, when I, she was, she's okay, but she was kind of confused about it. I mean, it wasn't like she, uh, was petrified and she goes, well, what did that, well, you know, what did, what did they mean? What neighborhood is it? Or, you know, they're being break-ins what's going on, you know? So I really was very elusive with her, you know, not to alarm her. Uh, but, uh, I certainly believe what she said and, uh, but she kind of interpreted it maybe like there's, you know, we live in a dangerous neighborhood is it safe around here. You know, I think that's the way she kind of looked at it. Fair enough. Um, I've got a bunch of other kind of random questions uh, just from one person who's interviewed people to another. Um, obviously, you with much more experience, you must have had many different types of experiences. What would you say was the most difficult experience you had interviewing somebody? Hmm. Um, guys, I said vicious was not the kindest, you know, because, uh, he just was annoyed with me and, you know, he's very imposing figure. So, uh, uh, but most of the time, I mean, it's been said that I knew how to kind of diffuse any situation or, uh, people got comfortable talking to me. Uh, I was able to get them, you know, I was able to get them in a conversation where they would disclose and, and be really comfortable. So I don't really remember anyone kind of like what was scary, except for Sid, you know, and I asked him to cut a promo and he goes, you're listening to Pro Wrestling Spotlight with the big fat fuck John Arezzi, you know, so. <laughs> and he looked like he was a shoot, you know, uh, so, um, but I don't have too many like, boy, that was a difficult interview or that was uh, you know, that was somebody who gave me a hard time on an interview. I, I don't have that a, a recollection of that. Okay. Well, that's pretty lucky, I suppose. Uh, cause I find, uh, from the time I'm nearing a hundred episodes now, and sometimes you can feel like, uh, as the, the, the interview's beginning, um, you can tell that they kind of just want to get through it. Uh, that they're already kind of bored by the idea. Oh, great! I agreed to do this thing. You now let's just try and get this over and done with. And it's my kind of job to to hook them 
at some point. If I feel like I haven't got them yet, I've got to try and find a way to make that connection with them. Um, so that was just, uh, I mean, luckily for you. <laughs> well, I think intuitively, if I, had a, if I had an interview subject, and I think there was one that I was really uncomfortable with, and that was Public Enemy. And even though right. I knew the guys pretty really well, I mean, here we are in uh, whatever the year was, 93 or 94, 94 probably. Uh, and they came on in character on my show. And my show at that time was not a show you come on in character. So that was a difficult uh, navigation. And uh, when I had the UWF at Herb Abrams and he you know, was helping him promote the New York uh, debut and he had you know, Dr. Death, Steve Williams and Paul Ondorf. And, you know, that was kind of hard to control because they were all doing wrestling angles with each other on on the radio. And that was kind of like, all right, let them go. It is what it is. So, yeah, you couldn't get any insider information out of them, you know, during that stuff. But uh, I had some brilliant, I, I mean, some of the most memorable things for me was John Tolis and Captain Lou Albano going at it on the air, uh, which was in character, but I loved it. I mean, so that was really cool. Um there were so many situations like that, you know, the Herb Abrams, Terry Funk exchanges and uh, when they were both on the show at the same time and uh, Herb Abrams and Eddie Gilbert. I was just listening to it because I uploaded it for the podcast. Um, incredible stuff. I mean, just to just each one of them was different and unique and exciting. But some of them, you know, like if they're not going to get comfortable with you, then what can you do? I mean, you just got to write it, write it out and then you go on to the next one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, know, I know how that feels. Um, you never have a lack of people to talk to. <laughs> That's it. Um, is there somebody that you never got to have on the show back in the day that you wish you had the chance to? Uh, I would have loved to have Owen Hart on. And we had talked, uh, and I did a, a backstage interview, a taped interview, but I always wanted to have him on actually, as a kind of a guest to take questions. And we were never able to work it out. Uh, so he stands out to me. And uh, there, of course, a lot of WWF performers that I would have loved to have on, but I never had access to them. Um, I didn't bring Vern Gagne on, uh, so that would have been a nice one to do back then. But most of the guys that I really wanted that were outside of the WWF, I was able to get. Fantastic. Um, we're getting towards the tail end of the interview here, John. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, I believe you had a show going out um, with Brian last called uh, Pro Wrestling Spotlight Then and Now. Uh, yes. I just wanted to know what happened to that show. I know you've got another show starting or has started that I'd it like started to do. And I think it's number two in your country right now with podcasts. Oh. Oh, uh, but the Brian last <laughs> situation, I mean, Brian and I uh, knew each other for several years. And in 2019, he, um, uh, he and I talked about, because uh, I, had, I, I had all my archives at all the shows. So we started a podcast called Pro Wrestling Spotlight Then and Now. F a phenomenal show. Loved it where we would review uh, all the episodes of Pro Wrestling Spotlight in chronological order from all those years ago. And uh, Brian and I had a, a great uh, chemistry on the air, great show, great relationship. He had a great team. And uh, I, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to work with him uh, over the two years that we did the show together. Uh, but then uh, 
a couple of years ago when I got back into wrestling, I mean, I was networking and I met uh, Conrad Thompson. I saw what he was doing with Starcast and all the things that he was building. And I was kind of like, this guy is cool. And, and when I met Conrad for the first time, he was like, yeah, oh, you're that guy, John Arezzi, you know, because everyone says I'm the next John Arezzi, you know, because I'm doing conventions and radio podcasting. And, and we kept, you know, and I told Brian, he goes, I don't like that guy. I mean, no, don't do anything with him. And this was a couple of years ago. So I was like, um, you know, I'm not an employee here. You know, we do a podcast together. So, uh, you know, then uh, I started having conversations with him. And uh, there's nothing wrong with talking to someone. And then earlier this year, uh, we were talking about doing some stuff together. I mean, not pro wrestling spotlight related. I have a massive archives. Mm. Uh, so we had talks about doing several things, but nothing that had to do with pro wrestling spotlight. And then I was very transparent with Brian and I told him that um, uh, I'm in conversations with, you know, Conrad. And then he just didn't want me to do anything. I don't share talent and uh, I don't like that kid. And, you know, just all of these things. And I'm, and, you know, so I said, really, I mean, uh, there's nothing imminent. It just talks. And I was just being honest. Uh, So uh, in, in uh, late June, we had a conversation and Brian is like, uh, uh, well, I'm going to give you a deadline of a couple of weeks and, and you think about it. And, and I just thought, I was like, well, you know, there's nothing imminent and I still want to continue the show. And I told Brian, I mean, there's nothing imminent. He goes, well, you know, then I'm going to remove myself from it and we'll get another host. And and then, and then he just said, I just don't want to do it. And, and then that was it. The show was over. It was done. Uh, And um, I felt terrible about it and still do. But everything happens for a reason. And uh, even though I I have nothing but uh, respect for Brian and and what we did together, and I think he's a a fabulous uh, personality with Jim Cornette and what he's built there at Arcadian Vanguard. But everything happens for a reason. So I've relaunched the show. And the show now is more reminiscent of what I did years ago, because now we have guests. And now we I have a new co-host, Bob Smith, who worked uh, as the... uh, uh, managing editor for Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the wrestler inside wrestling. He was executive editor for WCW Magazine years ago, and he was a frequent guest on Pro Wrestling Spotlight. So the chemistry I have with Bob is now more conversational, and we're doing deeper dives into it, but the show is back. And I looked at my rankings today, even in just two weeks. Uh, we're number eight in the United States of all wrestling podcasts, and, and there's only 250 that make the list. So we're number eight. Uh, in Australia, I think we're two, and in several European countries, we're number one. Uh, so we're getting thousands of downloads for the new rendition of uh, the podcast, which is called Pro Wrestling Spotlight, just John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And each and every week, we cover the show that happened 30 years ago. So it's a great sense of history. And I started a new podcast, which dropped last night, actually, uh, about Madison Square Garden. I was approached by some people and are like, well, you went to all these shows and what are your memories? So we're putting together a monthly show that actually drops 50 years to the day of the show I attended at Madison Square Garden. So uh, the let's say the episode that's right now that's out talks about August and then we do one for this October show and uh, then the next show drops November 15th, 50 years to the day I went to that garden show. Uh, to see Blassie versus Morales. And then December 6th, uh, that'll drop 50 years to the day uh, of that show. So it's called, it's simply called 
Matt Memories of Madison Square Garden. Uh, 50 years of wrestling at the Mecca, and the Mecca is the arena of Madison Square Garden. So that is cool stuff. I mean, so I'm happy. Uh, and I respect Brian. Uh, Brian uh, is not enamored with me anymore. Uh, and I, uh, you know, what can I do? I, I don't like the fact that he uh, has said things about me, but I'm not going down that road. And it hurts that we're not friends anymore. And that's up to him. It wasn't, it wasn't me. Absolutely, mate. It's, uh, you know, taking the, the high road is the best way to go. And, you know, um, if it, if, if he's the only one that is saying anything that in the end it makes him not look so good. So hopefully he'll, uh, come to the well, he's got a big fan point. following. He got a big fan following, but I think it's been silenced. When it first happened, I was getting a lot of the, the trolls and you should have stayed with Brian and this, but I didn't engage with that. Mm. I'm not about that. I am about sharing history. And and it's all quieted down now, especially with the podcast launch. It's like uh, the numbers are bigger than when I was with Brian for the first few weeks. So um, we'll see where it goes. But I I, ha I have no hate in my heart for anyone. And uh, one thing about the wrestling business, and I know you have to wrap it up, but uh, I love wrestling. Uh, wrestling has been in my blood since I was a little kid, but I despise the business of wrestling. Mm. I don't like it. And if anything's going to um, sour me, I mean, I'll just turn the page on it because I don't need the aggravation. Yeah. And the rumors and the trolls and all the other things that go along with being in the business and the little factions. And, um, you know, I'm not going to engage in any negativity with anybody. I admire that. Um, and yeah, I completely understand. Uh, and I really think with uh, Matt Memories that uh, it's, I like how neat and tidy it is. 50 years to the day, neat and tidy. If it was yes. 49 years to the day, it wouldn't feel the same. 50 years, fantastic. Love it. And, and it's 30 <laughs> years to the, to the week each time we drop a Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast. This Brilliant. is what happened 30 years ago this week. <laughs> that's excellent and if anyone out there you need to find the links this is on youtube look in the description down there i'll put links to everything that john's doing right now uh with matt memories and uh the book. and and of course the book of course we're going to have all of that down there where to find it how oh, to buy it you got uh, cover, of course uh, of <laughs> course <laughs> um okay uh john uh this is the final segment of the show. Five second frenzy, five seconds to answer each question. Even if you break the five second rule, it's okay. You won't get in trouble. And our, our, our listeners will not send you hate tweets. I promise you. you. Um, okay. The first question, it is about wrestling. Who is your favorite professional wrestler of all time? Fred Blassie. Excellent. Now, usually we have uh, professional wrestlers on the show. You did, however, wrestle twice. This next question is favorite opponent. Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you could think back to one particular match in the history of professional wrestling that would be your favorite, what would you pick? Uh, Bruno San Martino versus Spiro Sarion. Very nice. Uh, getting away from wrestling now, what is your favorite book? 
Uh, still, um, oof, so many. I read a lot. Uh, I would have to say Mankind's First Book, Mick Foley. Great book. Yeah, good answer. Uh, moving away from books, now favorite TV show? Sopranos. Yes, I love it. I almost wore my Bada Bing shirt tonight. Uh, I want to. I should have wore mine. <laughs> uh, favorite film? Goodfellas. Excellent. We see we get Goodfellas and The Sopranos a lot in this show. Um, I, I dig it. Uh, favorite musical artist or band? Beatles. Nice. Very good. Moving away from the arts now. Favorite food? A good steak. Yeah, me too. Uh, favorite place to eat on the road, John? Uh, the Palm Restaurant. Very nice. Uh, the third last one is, I don't know if you're a drinker, but um, it's usually your favorite alcoholic beverage. If you don't drink, just your favorite beverage in general. Uh, I do enjoy a good uh, Pinot Noir wine. Excellent. I've, uh, liquor, it's a Jack Daniels. If I'm in the mood for, yeah, the wine and a Jack, but I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I, I love Pinot Noir. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, second last one here on Five Second Frenzy, John. Favorite female body part? You see a good-looking lady. What, what what will the eyes go to first? Uh, definitely the butt. Yes, I like it, John. We've got a lot in common here. And uh, the final one, John, here. I don't know if you've uh, said one curse word on this show, but I'm Australian. We fucking swear all the time. What is your favorite curse word? Fuck. <laughs> that is the number one answer. If this were Family Feud, that would be the number one answer. Fafangul. Uh, <laughs> Fafangul in the time. Fafangul. Let me your ass. <laughs> excellent john well uh, I, i'm actually uh, i'm half italian as well so i feel like you know we're two paisans here uh and uh it, it's been so fun learning about your journey in professional wrestling and that was just touching the service i'm sure there's many more stories out there which everyone can find on Matt memories and uh your, what was the other podcast it was uh well, it's called uh, it's uh, John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight is the pot number one the podcast and the other podcast yep. is called Matt Memories from the Garden. Excellent. Matt so Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden. Wonderful. So yeah, we touched the surface in this interview, and if anyone wants to find out more, that's where you got to go to because you're going to get the whole story as those podcasts move along. Uh, John, again, I want to thank you for your time. You know, it's guys like you that have inspired people like me. Uh, so it means a lot to me to have had the opportunity to talk to you here today and uh, share some of your stories. And, um, you know, I feel like I've made a friend here today, John. Oh, you have. And it's been a pleasure to, to talk to you. Thank you, sir. And thank you, everyone out there, for watching the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WCWA Network. I'm California Inferior, alongside my new friend, John, and we will see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>